who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Welcome back. I'm Marco Palmieri. And I'm Nicole Otto. So last week, we left you hanging with part one of a very unsettling ghost story, so we aren't going to delay a second longer than necessary to get right back to it. This is part two of A Shade of Dusk, written by Indra Pramit Das and voiced by Shiromi Arsario. When I first heard over the phone that Chandra Shekhar had died in hospital, his brief one-week coma ended my first instinct was to smile. Real tears rolled down my cheeks, but there was that half a second of a rictus, like something had possessed my face. I went to Pumpy in Chandrasekhar's room, bearing the news like a terrible present. She had been combing her silver waves of hair. We used to comb each other's hair when we were younger, deliberately surprising each other by yanking the knots. She staggered up and shuffled to the phone to ask her children to pick us up and take us to the hospital. They said not to worry about it, that they would bring the body to the house, and then we'd go for the cremation and the cars. Afterward, Paloma sat in silence by the phone. I looked at the black and white framed portrait beside the phone. It was of Chandra Shekhar and her from two decades earlier, standing on the steps of the house we were in. Half a year later, we'd be here in this flat. The house sold off by her children because it was too large, too empty now that my parents and Chandra Shekhar were dead, too expensive to maintain. Not long after I returned from Oxford and moved into the family house with Pumpy and Chandra Shekhar and my parents, we went to visit Victoria Memorial. My sister, her baby bump, her husband and their son, 
Ever since the news that I wasn't the fertile bride-to-be they had expected to return from England, my parents acted like I had personally misled them into investing in my foreign degree, only to find out that it made no difference. My marriageability was doomed by my condition. They took me to multiple local doctors who agreed with the English one. I didn't blame my parents for their bitterness. I was as disappointed in myself, in my body, as they were. My body had always refused to attain the beauty Paloma's body seemed to so effortlessly radiate, and in time I had learned to live with this. But this was a betrayal I didn't know how to handle, so I helped take care of the house, of my sister's boy, of the cooking and cleaning, stayed out of the way of my parents, and snuck out to the sweet shop to eat hot rascolas whenever I could. Bereft of the duties of a housewife, I fantasized about getting a job, tightening rivets on bombs like those women I'd read about in America, who took over the men's jobs when their husbands all left to fight in the war. The outing to Victoria Memorial was my sister's idea. She was trying to make me feel at home again in Calcutta, taking pity on my unmarried and childless state. The grounds were flushed bright and green after a shower, and Queen Victoria's bronze cheeks were wet. I didn't feel any less alone back in my hometown, overwhelmed by a familiarity that grated against the loss of the life I was supposed to return to. Even the Victoria Memorial just reminded me of England and how different it had been, and how it had yet changed nothing about my life in the end. But I was filled with gratitude. I thrilled at the touch of Chandrasekhar's fingers on my arm to steady me when I slipped a little on the slick and pebbly paths around the monument. Suddenly there was a man next to me, a man not of my own blood, living in my home. Pratik tottered between his parents, eyes wide and round like the pebbles under his small feet, locked sometimes on the monument and other times on me, the strange new mushy in his life. He really likes you, Pumpy kept saying, though Pratik showed at best a wary familiarity with me, nothing more. She kept trying to pass his small hand into mine so I could walk with him. I resented being made to become a placeholder wife next to her husband, with their child a conduit for the illusion. And yet all I wanted to do was shower her with thanks for even this small kindness, though I felt no real connection towards Pratik at the time. Perhaps because he wasn't mine. With age, I have better come to terms with this. On the way back home, Pompey even insisted we stop for a hari of rosgulas, fresh and warm from the sweet shop. The lump in my throat was like a stone. That night I woke up and found my sanitary napkin drenched as I lay alone in my bed. It felt like there was a knot of barbed wire between my legs. I got up to go to the single bathroom of our ground floor to change it. As I came out of the bathroom, sighing at the cramps, I saw a shadowy figure in the corridor, washed by the dim bulb in the bathroom. I nearly screamed. The figure said, Loki D. It was Chandrasekhar. I put my hand over my mouth, frozen. I was in my nightgown. It hadn't been stained, thankfully. I wanted to turn back and check the entire bathroom floor and toilet for stray drops of blood. My face went hot. Babu, I finally whispered, my heart pounding. 
You scared me, I said. Okie dee. Sorry, he said in English. His smile was yellow in the faint light. I realized that the front of his white pajamas, right between his legs, was stretched. I could see the sweat shining in the hair on his chest. I was just coming to use the bathroom, he said, as if to explain what I was seeing. Yes, of course, I said. But he was in front of me, standing there. I didn't know how to ask him to step back so I could leave. And then he said so abruptly and softly, I've seen the way you look at me, Loki D. I admit that, at that moment, I thought about reaching out to touch that part of him that was stretching against the fabric of his pajamas. To touch a man like I never had. Dada Babu, good night, I said instead, not looking at the reflected glitter of the bathroom light on his spectacles. My tone was polite, as if I hadn't heard what he had just said. For a second, there was silence the pat of water dripping onto the floor of the bathroom. Good night, Loki D, he said and stepped back into the side of the corridor. I walked past him, not looking behind me. I could feel the blood between my legs, damp and warm, the pain radiating outwards like a familiar hand reaching inside me. I lay in bed for a long time afterwards, both longing for and dreading Chandra Shaker's appearance at my door. It didn't happen. The next morning, he acted like he always did. I didn't meet his eyes. Suddenly, he was family. I felt dirty, the blood still there between my legs, hidden under the folds of my sari and the fabric of my underwear. He would never belong to me like he belonged to my sister. If you ever read this, Pumpy, will you think I'm making up that incident by the bathroom? that this is a fantasy of jealousy. Maybe it was and my mind is making it up, and I'm the one being tricked. Sometimes Pampi and I watch Charu on Dordashan, singing Rabindra Sangeet on our little screen. She always looks radiant under the studio lights, and her voice, the way her fingers caress the harmonium and make it sing with her, makes me so proud my stomach begins to ache. On TV, she always wears saris, glittering green and red and blue ones lined with gold. Pumpy seems to take these performances for granted, talking about how Charu sweats too much on camera. When Chandra Shekhar was alive, she would be full of praise for Charu's singing and playing. Sitting beside her, Chandra Shekhar would weave his head to the music from the TV, puffing on his pipe, as if the smoke were incense to honor his daughter. You don't deserve to be her mother, I never tell Paloma. And then I'm filled with the sour feeling of being the resentful spinster. She is still grieving after all. When I was a child, I would listen to the screeching and yelping of foxes and jackals outside our barred windows at night while trying to go to sleep. Now, ever since Charu and Pratik put me and Pompey in this box of a flat, Three stories up, I can't really hear much except the honking of cars from the main road and the occasional barking of the stray dogs downstairs. The old house is rubble, not from a bomb, but from developers building a multi-story like this one. Last night I woke up with a start, covered in sweat. I saw someone standing at the door of my bedroom. I could just make them out. I couldn't move because I was scared. 
I didn't want them to see me. In the shadows, I saw the folds of a sari hanging off the figure and I realized it must be Pompey. I said her name faintly, still afraid to break the thick quiet of nighttime, in case it wasn't her. I realized the room smelled bad, very bad, like that rotten smell in the living room and the kitchen. Now it was here, too. Pumpy, I said a little louder this time. I miss you, the figure said. It was Pumpy, had to be. The voice was barely audible, like I was hearing it through a bad telephone connection. Because the sari-covered figure was in the dark of the doorway, I couldn't see the face. There was something strange about her posture, as if she had partially turned towards me without turning her lower body properly, twisting her back. It's time to leave, she said. I didn't know what to say. Leave? Where? It's the middle of the night. Pompey, go back to sleep, I told her. Somewhere outside, beyond the rooftops, I heard the faint sound of a local train passing through the night, whistling. She turned and walked into the dark. I could hear the hiss and pad of retreating feet dragging across the floor. Then I don't remember anything but waking up today morning. Kalpana said that I'd left the front door open, that I was lucky a thief didn't get in. Had Pompey done that while sleepwalking? Maybe I had been dreaming, or she had been. I don't dare go and ask her. The odd thing is that I feel like I miss her too. She sleeps so much I barely see her during all day. But last night I didn't feel that way. Not because she was right there in my room. No, it was because in that moment I was scared of her. I felt like the little sister from so many years ago again, confronted by a sister I both knew and didn't know. Today the phone rang during load shedding. It's on the desk where I sit and write, thankfully, so I can pick it up without having to hobble around with my walking stick. When I picked up the receiver, it sounded like a long-distance trunk call because of the clicking and static. There was silence on the other end, other than the interference. Hello, I said. Loki D, came a faint voice. It was a man. Who's this, Partho? I asked because Partho is one of my cousins who still remembers to call once in a while. Hello, Lokidi, came the voice again. My cousins call me that. So did my brother-in-law. The voice was so faint I could barely hear it, like a signal from a radio being tuned in and out. Something began to tickle my chest from the inside, a butterfly emerging under my heartbeat. Who is this, I asked. Is Pompey there? She, yes, I mean, who is this? You know who it is, said the voice. A wash of static buzzed through the receiver, crackling with each word, clicking like bird's claws against the other end. I looked out at the dark city, the lightless neighborhood under the deep blue evening. Everything out there seemed too silent. Where's Pompey? The static rasped. I think she's asleep. Ah, who is this? I can't recognize you. Is it Partho, I said. Pumpy isn't asleep, said the voice, and the inflection of the words was so familiar I felt lightheaded for a moment, the sky above Calcutta beyond the grill of the window warping and dimming slightly. What? Tell her to come here and join me. It's getting late, said the voice, beyond the static, 
Beyond the sound of the words, I heard the mournful wail of a train. Join you. Where? Who are you? She knows where. She doesn't belong there in that flat anymore. The voice came, almost drowned out by the sound of the train horn again in the background. You know where, Loki D. You should follow her here. What is this? Is this a joke? Partho? I've seen the way you used to look at me, Loki D. And Pompey and the children. Follow her here. The children can take care of themselves now. You can't be a mother to them. I had no idea what to say. The phone clicked and crackled and hissed into my ear at the silence. Who is this? I said again, weakly. You know it's too late. Take your sister and meet me here. I admit I asked then, very softly. Chandrasekhar? The trains in the background wailed again, and there was a sharp click. Then the whir of the dial tone. I just woke up to an empty house. I knew in my heart it was empty. It was dark in the room, the power was out. I could barely see anything. It was blue outside, late evening light. By that faint glow, I could see Paloma lying next to me in the bed. Pompey, what are you doing? I asked, because she never comes and naps in my room. The bed creaked. I could feel it move as she shifted on her side to look at me. She was silhouetted against the blue coming from the window, her arm against her hip turned to me. I couldn't see her face or anything of her except the outline of her body. It was like she was wearing a sari made of darkness. I wiped the sweat from under my chin, the anchal of my sari damp. I leaned over and felt for the switch to turn on the bedside lamp. It didn't turn on because the power was out. Then I remembered that the house was empty, that Paloma is dead. I could smell the damp fabric of her sari and the faint, sweet scent of talc powder caking on her sweat and the tamarind tartness of her breath after she'd sucked on her favorite Hajmala digestive tablets. But most of all, I could smell the familiar stench of emptied bowels or something rotten. I felt sick and felt myself sway on the bed. Pumpy, I said. I reached out to touch her blank, shadowed face, expecting cold, pliant flesh. Chandrasekhar called. My hand went through air into the blackness, though my eyes stayed on her solid silhouette. The crows screamed outside. My heart racing, I struggled upright and waved my hand further through her body. She remained silent. As my throbbing, clammy fingers vanished into the void of her body, the world exploded into blinding light and sound. Electricity flooded the room as the power returned, the ceiling fan clattering on loudly, the tube lights snapping and buzzing to life. In the five seconds of stuttering shadow and light as the old fluorescent struggled to turn itself on, I saw my arm hovering inside my sister, vanishing into her bone-white sari at the point of the lower abdomen. My eyes darted to her face under the cowl, but there was none. 
There was only the pillow behind her as her entire body faded like the afterimage on a television turned off. As the shadows ceased and the tube lights stopped flickering, I saw my hand held out over an empty bed, where seconds ago had been an entire person. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast, Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I tried to read this journal and really figure out what I've written in those stretches of darkness, where it feels like I am dozing and dreaming while writing that the dusk has become a part of me and sent me into a faraway place until Kalpana shakes my shoulder and washes reality with her candle, while the power returns with the fan bursting into clattering life above me. I feel sick in my heart and stomach at the untidy words on these pages. Despite what I have written during the load sheddings, my sister no longer lives with me in this flat. She no longer lives anywhere. But I remember talking to Paloma in the dark, and waking up next to her. Why do I remember that? I don't know if I'm remembering these moments from when she was still alive, from when we lived here together, but as hazy as the gaps in my life become, my hand moving through my sister's vanishing body is clear as the snap and flash of that tube light illuminating my empty bedroom. That blackness under the cowl of her sari, as brutal as the plain, white, featurelessness of her face, covered in white cloth at the crematorium, the assurances that I didn't want to see what was beneath one last time before she went into the flames. I never did see. Today afternoon, Charu came by with a tiffin carrier of dal and chana and a foil-wrapped packet of roti because Kalpana is sick again, the poor thing. Charu went to the kitchen and reheated it all on the stove despite my protests. Then together we sat for lunch. Potol wasn't with her this time, nor Sanjay. 
School, I think. While eating, Charu said Pratik has written to the building society to get a generator for the stairwell because of all the load shedding. It's not safe, she said. I didn't say that I would never try going down those stairs in the dark. She said that Pratik was also looking into at least buying an inverter for the flat so that I can have power in the living room when load shedding happens. Then tearing little strips of roti on her plate, she asked, Loki Mashi, do you want to come stay with us? We have an extra room. I'm sure Bijoy would be fine with it. I told her it was fine, that she shouldn't worry about me, that I still had my wits about me, that I didn't want to be a burden to them in their flat with their children to take care of. It's not a burden. I don't like seeing you here alone like this. I remembered again then. Of course, of course I am alone here. I know you're fine, Lokimashi, but I'd feel better if you were there with us. And not sitting in this empty flat day after day. I wondered then how many times I talked to Charu as if her mother still lived here. I told Charu that she made my life sound very sad, with a bit of a laugh. She shook her head. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's just that when Ma was here, it made sense. But now, every time I walk up and down those stairs, I feel like I should be taking you away from here. Don't worry, I don't take the stairs anyway. You know that, I take the lift, I said. I told her not to worry. I was fine here. Chari smiled at me then, but I could tell she didn't want to. Marshi, just think about it. We would be happy to have you with us. No more sitting in the dark during load shedding. Our flat has an inverter, and you wouldn't be alone all the time. I smiled back at her and said I would think about it. I knew then that she and Bijoy would decide by themselves to stop renting this flat and move me to their place soon enough. It was a waste of money, and I am, apparently, forgetting things more often than I want to admit. So why did I feel a pang of disappointment when she mentioned these plans about inverters and generators and moving? But I know why. I've always told Kalpana not to bring the candles to where I'm sitting in the living room. There has always been something about being held in the arms of the dark, suffering in the silent heat, something comforting. The darkness reminds me of my sister. This is the place we were alone together again. Maybe if I write down how she died while the afternoon sun shines outside, I will remember that she is dead. Not so long ago, I can't seem to remember how long, and I can't ask Charu or Pratik or anyone because they will worry. But I think it was about a year ago. My sister woke up from her afternoon nap late, just as the power went out in the evening. It was summer, like it is now, so it must have been a year ago. As Kalpana was lighting candles in the kitchen to place around the flat, Pumpy walked through the living room where I was sitting waiting for tea. I could hear the call to prayer from the mosque a few streets down from us, drifting in through the veranda. A local train somewhere far away, whistling through the twilight. As Pumpy walked by me, I asked her why she'd slept in so late, whether she was feeling all right. She said to me, Chandra Shekhar called. Her husband, of course, could not have called because he was dead. Neither of us is young, so while this comment startled me, it didn't seem too strange. Only unsettling, because it meant Pumpy was in a muddled mood, which often led to her getting angry, lashing out. She had gotten confused before, 
Then, instead of sitting down with me, she walked past me toward the front door, swaying impatiently from side to side to keep pressure off her weak hips. She didn't have her walking stick. I am not a fast woman either at this age. I barely even realized she had opened the door when she stepped out into the building stairwell. I felt the warm gust of the draft that comes through the living room when the front door is open. There were no lights on in the stairwell, of course. No lift operating without power. I grabbed for my walking stick and tried to get up to follow her and get her back inside, spending precious seconds in panicked confusion before calling to Kalpana to get out of the kitchen and chase Pumpy D, who had walked out into the dark stairwell. Kalpana was just walking out from the kitchen to the living room with a candle at that moment, sending shadows leaping everywhere. Eyes wide, she put the candle down on the dining table adjacent to the sitting area as quick as she could and ran towards the door. I had managed to get up and walk in her wake, my stick grinding against the stone floor with each heavy step, the room wavering and sallow from the light of the candle. I felt dizzy, my knees shooting with pain. The front door was wide open, black as a moonless sea, the draft from the stairs like warm breath gushing from a wide mouth. Kalpana plunged into the darkness just as I heard a noise like a sackful of potatoes hurled down the stairs. A scream pierced the darkness as I walked towards it. Not my sister, but Kalpana. Pompey was probably already dead at that point, having gone headfirst down an entire flight of stairs in her rush to get wherever she was going. Without her walking stick, without any illumination in the stairwell, the fall was inevitable. I waited at the top of those stairs in the dark, sweating, for the power to come back, because Kalpana refused to let me try and navigate the stairs. She stood guard by Pumpy. Soon enough, the stairwell was speared by light from torches waved by our neighbors coming out of their flats, concerned voices echoing down the shaft of the stairwell. The beams of light revealed blood like a glistening fresh coat of dark paint on the stairs, leading down from Paloma's twisted body, her white sari half unraveled, her pale belly speckled with moles in the torchlight. She was caught in a dance that she couldn't have danced at her age, limbs bent and spine arched and twisted in wild abandon. The anchal of her sari covered her face like an ominous veil, soaking blooms from head wounds. There she lay, until the power came back on, until the ambulance came, until her children arrived with their faces shining with tears. When the lights came back on, I nearly shouted for someone to turn them off, to keep her wreathed in shadow, so she would not have to show herself like this. The stairwell was hot, full of people, and rank with the stench of the final, bodily indignities of death. I felt so faint by the time strangers were moving her limp body onto a stretcher, that it felt like I might follow her down those steps, now dark with a spilled part of her once beautiful body. Kalpana is still sick at home. They think it's malaria. Chari said she made sure the parents have the medicine for her, even as she calls me every day to remind me to take my own medications. So once again I have the flat to myself. Food brought by Charu in the dripping fridge, even though I told her I can still cook. Lovely Charu. I see her as a little child still, because I'm so much older than her, because I saw her fresh out of my sister's womb, covered in blood and mucus. 
I held my sister's wet hand as the baby found her nipple, and my vision dissolved in tears when she said to me then, voice hoarse from shouting and screaming through labor, You'll raise her with me, Loki. Little baby Charu. But what a woman she is, singing on TV, raising her boys, taking care of her family, being such a good wife to Bijoy. She has already done everything I haven't. I admit that I envy her not just because of her relative youth. The truth is I didn't raise her with my sister. Pumpy never needed that. She was a wonderful mother and Charu a wonderful daughter. I was just any old Nashi. Or maybe they were just any old mother and daughter. Their perfection nothing but the gloss of envy in this Mashi's eyes. I am alone in the darkness, the city with its eyes closed in the twilight. No electricity beyond the bars of the window, just the pall of dusk. The crows cawing at the coming dark as always. Far away, the glimmer of light beyond the zone of the load shedding is like another reality in the distance where the living are. In my neighborhood, there is only silence, but a train far away, leaving forever. The mosquitoes are drawing what stale blood is left in my veins. There is an unbearable stench, as if the breeze through the window has caught a festering garbage heap. But I know it's coming from inside. I can barely see Pumpy in the dim living room. Her posture is worse than before. She is stooping, her back bent, her head cocked to one side. I cannot see her face under the cowl of her sari, the fabric of which glows a muted blue in the dim light from the windows. I can see that there are dark stains on the cotton, blooms of black. I want to tell her to think of tomorrow, when she will feel better because no sickness lasts forever like she used to tell me when I got sick as a little girl. Think of tomorrow when you will feel better, she would say, touching my forehead. The leering boot that turned to me at night and spoke to me of how I would never get married vanished into my pumpy. But I don't know if I should say anything, because this doesn't feel quite like my pumpy. But it is her. There is a warm gust running through the living room. The front door to the flat is open, like a black mouth open. The stairwell is a throat, a tunnel, a canal. I remember the jet black of the Suez Canal at night beyond the rails of a ship taking me back home, the thrashing waves haunted by what dead sailors I didn't know. Paloma is waiting. She wants to leave this little flat we shared. Chandrasekhar called. Charu and Pratik don't need her anymore. They don't need me either. No one does except Pumpy, perhaps, now. She is waiting for me. Or is Chandrasekhar waiting for us? I can't tell if Pumpy is angry or sad or beckoning because I can't see her. We're sisters. I look into her featureless face as she looks at me through the black veil, and I cannot, for the love of my God, tell if I am afraid.
This was just a fascinating perspective on the life of a solitary older woman. You feel the weight of the years she's lived, the family tension implicit in what her sister had, but which was missing from her own life. The combination of melancholy and sheer terror really worked for me. Yeah, same. To me, this one is about being haunted by by your own familial relationships mm -hmm. in some way, by the things that... Um, by the envy that you felt for your sister, by the complicated feelings you had for a brother-in-law, for everything, like you said, that you wish you had but didn't have, um, and how that all just becomes jumbled with age. Yeah. And, like, the idea of facing all of that when it is your time to go, um, I thought was very well done. Yeah, and what regrets you will end up taking with you. Yeah. I don't think you can ever get rid of them, right? <laughs> you know, um, but the whole story just felt like a dream sequence to me. Uh -huh. Like, yeah. like um, it didn't always have logic, but it had dream logic. If right. that makes no, sense, it, it had a dream-like quality. I agree. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think you know it's strangely you know meditative and deep for a ghost story. Mm -hmm. You know, which. I mean that in the best possible way. I thought it absolutely worked and that it's kind of the thing Indra does best. You know, he takes terror, but he makes it very thoughtful when, mm -hmm. he, when he does horror. Well, that seems like a good place to end this episode. Thanks for joining me, Nicole. And if stories like A Shade of Dusk are what you enjoy, let us know with a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And join us for our next episode when we'll catch up with an investigator who can speak with the dead. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 83, features A Shade of Dusk, Part 2, by Indra Promet Das. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Osadolahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Sharomi Arsario. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Osadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.